Chapter 7 of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Turbid Ebb and Flow of Misery. Quote, every night and every morn, some to misery are born. Every morn and every night, some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to endless night. End quote. William Blake. During these years in New York, trained nurses were in great demand. Few people wanted to enter hospitals. They were afraid they might be practiced upon and consented to go only in desperate emergencies. Sentiment was especially vehement in the matter of having babies. A woman's own bedroom, no matter how inconveniently arranged, was the usual place for her lying in. I was not sufficiently free from domestic duties to be a general nurse, but I could ordinarily manage obstetrical cases because I was notified far enough ahead to plan my schedule and after serving my two weeks, I could get home again. Sometimes I was summoned to small apartments occupied by young clerks, insurance salesmen, or lawyers, just starting out, most of them under thirty, and whose wives were having their first or second baby. They were always eager to know the best and latest method in infant care and feeding. In particular, Jewish patients whose lives centered around the family, welcomed advice and followed it implicitly. But more and more, my calls began to come from the Lower East Side, as though I were being magnetically drawn there by some force outside my control. I hated the wretchedness and hopelessness of the poor, and never experienced that satisfaction in working among them that so many noble women have found. My concern for my patients was now quite different from my earlier hospital attitude. I could see that much was wrong with them which did not appear in the physiological or medical diagnosis. A woman in childbirth was not merely a woman in childbirth. My expanded outlook included a view of her background, her potentials as a human being, the kind of children she was bearing, and what was going to happen to them. The wives of small shopkeepers were my most frequent cases, but I had carpenters, truck drivers, dishwashers, and pushcart vendors. I admired intensely the consideration most of these people had for their own. Money to pay doctor and nurse had been carefully saved months in advance. Parents-in-law, grandfathers, grandmothers, all contributing. As soon as the neighbors learned that a nurse was in the building, they came in a friendly way to visit, often carrying fruit, jellies, or gefilte fish made after a cherished recipe. It was infinitely pathetic to me that they— so poor themselves, should bring me food. Later they drifted in again with the excuse of getting the plate and sat down for a nice talk. There was no hurry. 
Always back of the little gift was the question, I'm pregnant, or my daughter or my sister is. Tell me something to keep from having another baby. We cannot afford another yet. I tried to explain the only two methods I had ever heard of among the middle classes, both of which were invariably brushed aside as unacceptable. They were of no certain avail to the wife because they placed the burden of responsibility solely upon the husband, a burden which he seldom assumed. What she was seeking was self-protection she could herself use, and there was none. Below this stratum of society was one in truly desperate circumstances. The men were sullen and unskilled, picking up odd jobs now and then, but more often unemployed, lounging in and out of the house at all hours of the day and night. The women seemed to slink on their way to market and were without neighborliness. These submerged, untouched classes were beyond the scope of organized charity or religion. No labor union, no church, not even the Salvation Army reached them. They were apprehensive of everyone and rejected help of any kind, ordering all intruders to keep out. Both birth and death they considered their own business. Social agents, who were just beginning to appear, were profoundly mistrusted because they pried into homes and lives, asking questions about wages, how many were in the family, had any of them been in jail. Often two or three had been there, or were now under suspicion of prostitution, shoplifting, purse-snatching, petty thievery, and in consequence passed furtively by the big blue uniforms on the corner. The utmost depression came over me as I approached this surreptitious region. Below 14th Street, I seemed to be breathing a different air, to be in another world and country where the people had habits and customs alien to anything I had ever heard about. There were then approximately 10,000 apartments in New York into which no sun ray penetrated directly. Such windows as they had opened only on a narrow court from which rose fetid odors. It was seldom cleaned, though garbage and refuse often went down into it. All these dwellings were pervaded by the foul breath of poverty that moldy, indefinable, indescribable smell which cannot be fumigated out, sickening to me, but apparently unnoticed by those who live there. When I set to work with antiseptics, their pungent sting, at least temporarily, obscured the stench. I remember one confinement case to which I was called by the doctor of an insurance company. I climbed up the five flights and entered the airless rooms, but the baby had come with too great speed. A boy of ten had been the only assistant. Five flights was a long way. He had wrapped the placenta in a piece of newspaper and dropped it out the window into the court. Many families took in boarders, as they were termed, whose small contributions paid the rent. 
these derelicts, wanderers, alternately working and drinking, were crowded in with the children. A single room sometimes held as many as six sleepers. Little girls were accustomed to dressing and undressing in front of the men, and were often violated, occasionally by their own fathers or brothers, before they reached the age of puberty. Pregnancy was a chronic condition among the women of this class. Suggestions as to what to do for a girl who was in trouble, or a married woman who was caught, passed from mouth to mouth. Herb teas, turpentine, steaming, rolling downstairs, inserting slippery elm, knitting needles, shoe hooks. When they had word of a new remedy, they hurried to the drug store and if the clerk were inclined to be friendly, he might say, Oh, that won't help you, but here's something that may. The younger druggists usually refused to give advice, because if it were to be known, they would come under the law. Midwives were even more fearful. The doomed women implored me to reveal the secret rich people had, offering to pay me extra to tell them. Many really believed I was holding back information for money. They asked everybody and tried anything, but nothing did them any good. On Saturday nights, I have seen groups of from 50 to 100 with their shawls over their head waiting outside the office of a $5 abortionist. Each time I returned to this district, which was becoming a recurrent nightmare, I used to hear that Mrs. Cohen had been carried to a hospital, but had never come back, or that Mrs. Kelly had sent the children to a neighbor and had put her head into the gas oven. Day after day, such tales were poured into my ears. A baby born dead, great relief. The death of an older child, sorrow, but again, relief of a sort. The story told a thousand times of death from abortion and children going into institutions. I shuddered with horror as I listened to the details and studied the reasons back of them. Destitution linked with excessive childbearing. The waste of life seemed utterly senseless. One by one, worried, sad, Pensive and aging faces marshaled themselves before me in my dreams, sometimes appealingly, sometimes accusingly. These were not merely unfortunate conditions among the poor, such as we read about. I knew the women personally. They were living, breathing human beings with hopes, fears, and aspirations like my own. Yet their weary, misshapen bodies, always ailing, never failing, were destined to be thrown on the scrap heap before they were thirty-five. I could not escape from the facts of their wretchedness. Neither was I able to see any way out. My own cozy and comfortable family existence was becoming a reproach to me. Then... One stifling mid-July day of 1912, I was summoned to a Grand Street tenement. My patient was a small, slight Russian Jewess, about 28 years old. 
of the special cast of feature to which suffering lends a Madonna-like expression. The cramped three-room apartment was in a sorry state of turmoil. Jake Sachs, a truck driver scarcely older than his wife, had come home to find the three children crying and her unconscious from the effects of a self-induced abortion. He had called the nearest doctor, who in turn had sent for me. Jake's earnings were trifling, and most of them had gone to keep the none-too-strong children clean and properly fed. But his wife's ingenuity had helped them to save a little, and this he was glad to spend on a nurse rather than have her go to a hospital. The doctor and I settled ourselves to the task of fighting the septicemia. Never had I worked so fast, never so concentratedly. The sultry days and nights were melted into a torpid inferno. It did not seem possible there could be such heat, and every bit of food, ice, and drugs had to be carried up three flights of stairs. Jake was more kind and thoughtful than many of the husbands I had encountered. He loved his children and had always helped his wife wash and dress them. He had brought water up and carried garbage down before he left in the morning and did as much as he could for me while he anxiously watched her progress. After a fortnight, Mrs. Sack's recovery was in sight. Neighbors, ordinarily fatalistic as to the results of abortion, were genuinely pleased that she had survived. She smiled wanly at all who came to see her and thanked them gently, but she could not respond to their hearty congratulations. She appeared to be more despondent and anxious than she should have been and spent too much time in meditation. At the end of three weeks, as I was preparing to leave the fragile patient to take up her difficult life once more, she finally voiced her fears. Another baby will finish me, I suppose. It's too early to talk about that, I temporized. But when the doctor came to make his last call, I drew him aside. Mrs. Sachs is terribly worried about having another baby. She well may be, replied the doctor. And then he stood before her and said, Any more such capers, young woman, and there'll be no need to send for me. I know, doctor, she replied timidly, but, and she hesitated, as though it took all her courage to say it, what can I do to prevent it? The doctor was a kindly man, and he had worked hard to save her, but such incidents had become so familiar to him that he had long ago since lost whatever delicacy he might once have had. He laughed good-naturedly. You want to have your cake and eat it too, do you? Well, it can't be done. Then, picking up his hat and bag to depart, he said, Tell Jake to sleep on the roof. I glanced quickly at Mrs. Sachs. Even through my sudden tears, I could see stamped on her face an expression of absolute despair. We simply looked at each other, saying no word until the door had closed behind the doctor. Then she lifted her thin, blue-veined hands and clasped them beseechingly. 
He can't understand. He's only a man. But you do, don't you? Please tell me the secret, and I'll never breathe it to a soul. Please. What was I to do? I could not speak the conventionally comforting phrases which would be of no comfort. Instead, I made her as physically easy as I could and promised to come back in a few days to talk with her again. A little later, when she slept, I tiptoed away. Night after night, the wistful image of Mrs. Sachs appeared before me. I made all sorts of excuses to myself for not going back. I was busy on other cases. I really did not know what to say to her or how to convince her of my own ignorance. I was helpless to avert such monstrous atrocities. Time rolled by, and I did nothing. The telephone rang one evening three months later, and Jake Sachs' agitated voice begged me to come at once. His wife was sick again and from the same cause. For a wild moment, I thought of sending someone else, but actually, of course, I hurried into my uniform, caught up my bag, and started out. All the way, I longed for a subway wreck, an explosion, anything to keep me from having to enter that home again. But nothing happened even to delay me. I turned into the dingy doorway and climbed the familiar stairs once more. The children were there, young little things. Mrs. Sachs was in a coma and died within ten minutes. I folded her still hands across her breast, remembering how they pleaded with me, begging so humbly for the knowledge which was her right. I drew a sheet over her pallid face. Jake was sobbing, running his hands through his hair and pulling it out like an insane person. Over and over again he wailed, My God! My God! My God! I left him pacing desperately back and forth, and for hours I myself walked and walked and walked through the hushed streets. When I finally arrived home and let myself quietly in, all the household was sleeping. I looked out my window and down upon the dimly lighted city. Its pains and griefs crowded in upon me. A moving picture rolled before my eyes with photographic clearness. Women writhing in travail to bring forth little babies. The babies themselves naked and hungry, wrapped in newspapers to keep them from the cold. Six-year-old children with pinched, pale, wrinkled faces, old and concentrated wretchedness, pushed into gray and fetid cellars, crouching on stone floors, their small, scrawny hands scuttling through rags, making lampshades, artificial flowers, white coffins, black coffins, Coffins, coffins interminably passing in never-ending succession. The scenes piled one upon another, on another. I could bear it no longer. As I stood there, the darkness faded. The sun came up and threw its reflection over the housetops. It was the dawn of a new day in my life also. The doubt and questioning, 
The experimenting and trying were now to be put behind me. I knew I could not go back merely to keeping people alive. I went to bed, knowing that no matter what it might cost, I was finished with palliatives and superficial cures. I was resolved to seek out the root of evil, to do something to change the destiny of mothers whose miseries were vast as the sky. End of chapter 7